Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. As we have been working our way through the first, well now, 13 chapters of Isaiah, we have also been developing principles so that we can better understand how Old Testament prophecy works. Tonight we're going to continue building on that platform that we've already built up, but as we do, I'm going to be doing a lot of reminding you of the things that we've already seen, the things that we already know, but that you have to keep in mind in order to understand like the second half of chapter 13 and then Israel's taunting of Babylon that goes on in Isaiah 14. The only way that you can really comprehend those is to remember some of the principles that we have already seen as we've been going through the book. We're also going to be utilizing again some dates that are obvious right in the book and in human history just so that we can see how genuine these prophecies actually are. It's one of the reasons that the critics of the Bible like to criticize books like Daniel, like Jeremiah, like Isaiah, because there's just no way short of divine intervention. There's no way that people could know these things and this amount of detail that far ahead. And so part of the way that the critics of the Old Testament have attempted to undermine our confidence in the Old Testament is to try to late date those books and say, well, that prophecy couldn't have happened at the time that they say that they were actually prophesying because they couldn't have known these things. And yet they do. And tonight we're going to see evidence yet again that Isaiah and in fact Daniel and in fact Jeremiah all talked about prophetically what was going to happen in the Middle East and specifically in Babylon, which actually did genuinely historically happen. It's not even questionable anymore. The only question that's left is when did they write it, except that we know when these various prophets lived and when they were prophesying. So the evidence is right in front of us that this is in fact God's word because it has to be supernatural by the very fact that it prophesies so accurately and those prophecies predate the actual events which actually do occur exactly like the Bible said they would. And again, I'm going to stress that no other piece of respected religious literature in the world does that. It is only the Bible that does that. So it's one of the many reasons that we have so much confidence in the Bible and spend so much time studying the Word of God, treating the Bible as it is the Word of God, because the evidences that it is the Word of God are just hard-baked into it. It's, they're just entrenched in it. You can't separate them from it. It's just part and parcel of what the Bible is, that it accurately proves itself by predicting history in advance. And then time and circumstance tell us that the things that it predicted actually happened. So with that bit of introduction, we are diving into the middle of Isaiah 13, which is where we left off. This is the prediction that Babylon is going to fall. 
Last week I told you that the beginning of this prophecy can be referring, at least partially, to the fall of Babylon that was coming up under Assyria, but that was going to happen just after Isaiah's lifetime. That could have been the prediction. But then as we start reading at verse 17, you're going to see that the prediction opens up beyond that and then says that Babylon is going to fall to the Medes and the Persians, which is a completely different fall than when they fell to the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the primary power in the Middle East at that time, but then the Assyrians do become conquered by Babylon. Babylon takes over as the primary superpower there in the Middle East, and it is considered to be impregnable. It's considered to be unconquerable. And yet God says that they're going to be conquered by the Medes and the Persians. That's very, very specific, that they're going to fall to the Medes. And that prophecy is not only in Isaiah, it's also in Daniel, and it's also in Jeremiah. And we're going to look at all three of them tonight. So those prophets, in succession with each other, still all predate the actual fall of Babylon to the Medes and the Persians. In fact, Daniel is there in Babylon at the moment that that takes place. Daniel serves in Babylon from the time of Nebuchadnezzar all the way through to Belshazzar and then to the fall of Babylon and the incoming Medes and Persians. And the reason that that particular fall of Babylon is so important is that it is the Medes and the Persians. It is the Persian king who is going to allow the Judahites to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild their city walls, rebuild their temple, and that's all the stuff that we read as we were going through Ezra and Nehemiah. So it is so specific. It's such a moment in time. It is such a cataclysmic moment of proving God's faithfulness to his people Israel that all three prophets bring it up. So it's really important. The same way that when we're reading the Gospels, you'll find stories that the three synoptics recite or that all four of them recite. And we kind of hone in on those and we say, now this is important because look how often it's brought up. Okay, same thing in the Old Testament. This is important because see how often it is brought up. And then as we get into chapter 14, and we may or may not get there this evening all the way to what I'm about to describe to you, but as we get into chapter 14, there is a, a teasing, a taunting of the king of Babylon laid out. And in the midst of that taunt, Isaiah, looking prophetically at the fall of Babylon, looks past the king of Babylon and starts speaking not only to the spirit that drives him and refers to him as son of the morning, the proper name is Lucifer, and then describes him as wanting to place his throne in the place of the north, but then also starts speaking of the ultimate Antichrist to come and starts creating ripples and foreshadows of the things that John describes and that Paul describes when the Antichrist will stand in the temple showing himself that he is God. And so all these things are combined in this prophecy from Isaiah. He sees it all as one complete prophecy. 
We see it as divided up through the periods of time, as it has all grown and come to fruition. But he saw it all as one big chunk. So he could speak to the king of Babylon, who hadn't yet become the king, who was then going to fall to the Medes and Persians. He could then taunt that king for the way he's been destroyed and how the other kings down in the graves, the other kings of the earth, are going to rise up to meet him and say, now you've become one of us. You're just another dead king. You're nothing. And then speak right past him to Lucifer himself and speak. And in regards to speaking to Lucifer, he then speaks to the ultimate Antichrist to come. And it's all in this one chapter of chapter 14. So it's really fascinating stuff. And I hope that I can do it justice. And we're going to hopefully go through it slow enough that you can see all these pieces, all these elements because when you just look at it, it's a bunch of words on a page. But when you pay attention to the words and you put them into their historic context and you put them into their prophetic context and you look at it in the whole scope of the Bible and of human history, it's astounding words on a page. It's words that could only have reached you and me right now because they were God's words. Had they been human words, they would have been misproven by now. They would have fallen apart by now. So my intention is to prove to you the validity of these prophecies. I'm going to start reading in Isaiah just to kind of build up speed toward what we're going to look at tonight. We ended with this last week. Chapter 13, verse 1. These are prophecies about Babylon, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Lift up a standard on a bare hill. Told you last week that means a bald hill. There are going to be no trees. There's going to be nothing to obscure the view of the standard that God is raising. Lift up a standard on a bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter the doors of mighty men, nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones, my separated ones, my distinct ones. I have even called my mighty warriors my proudly exalting ones, to execute my anger. A sound of tumult on the mountains, like that of many people. A sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. They are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons. The Lord and his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt, and they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. 
I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind scarcer than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I shall make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. And it will be that like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them, they will each turn to his own people and each one will flee to his own land and anyone who is found will be thrust through and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their little ones also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered. Their wives will be ravished. Now we know from Isaiah chapter 6 when he said that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw God high and lifted up. And that's when God asked the question, who shall we send? He says, here am I, Lord, send me. And then he gains the commission from God. We know then what year King Uzziah died. We know that he died 742 BC. We know that's when the commission happened. We know that that's when Isaiah is talking about. And yet here he is talking about Babylon falling. And Babylon is going to fall, as I mentioned earlier, to the Assyrians, but that will be sometime right after the end of Isaiah's life. We don't know exactly when or exactly how Isaiah died. There are legends about the death of Isaiah, but we don't know for certain. It's not biblically secure. But we know what the average lifespan would have been, so we know that he would have been gone by the time the Assyrians conquered Babylon. So even if you were to say that the Assyrians conquering Babylon is what he was describing there, you would still have to admit that was prophecy, and it was accurate prophecy. But now he's going to leap past that. Now remember, Babylon's not yet a superpower when he's prophesying this. And Judah has not gone into Babylon yet. They're not even in captivity yet. It's going to be Jeremiah who's going to tell us that they're going to be taken into captivity in Babylon and that they're going to be there for 70 years. So Isaiah doesn't have all that yet. He doesn't know all that. He hasn't seen all that yet. That is not historical fact yet. And yet he leaps to verse 17 and says, Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against you. It is the Medo-Persian country, the, the Medo-Persian partnership, the Medo-Persian nations and armies that ultimately do conquer Babylon once Babylon has become the great superpower of the Middle East and after Judah has already been taken into captivity in Babylon, none of which has occurred when Isaiah said that. And do you see the leap he took? He jumped way forward in time. In fact, the fall of Babylon to the Medo-Persians is in 539 B.C. Okay, so now for comparison, his prophesying began in 742 B.C. The fall of Babylon to the Medes, 539 B.C. That's a couple of hundred years. Isaiah didn't live that long, and yet he foresaw it. Before they were a superpower, before they conquered Jerusalem, before they took the Jews into captivity, before Jeremiah predicts that they're going to be there for 70 years, before any of that, Isaiah says, behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes against you. How astoundingly accurate is that? And how do you explain that perfect 
summation of Middle Eastern history unless that is the Word of God. I mean, there's no human being who can do that. Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against you. They will not value silver nor take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men. And they will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, and their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, wait, when he was prophesying, Babylon was not the beauty of kingdoms. Babylon was about to get crushed by Assyria. But later it was going to become great, impregnable, magnificent Babylon. Hadn't happened yet. And here Isaiah predicts it is going to be at the time that it falls, at the time that the Medo-Persians take it, it is going to be the primary city there in the Middle East. It's going to be the beauty of kingdoms. It is the glory of the Chaldeans' pride. And it will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so he's predicting a whole lot of things here. He's predicting they're going to become this great magnificent city that is going to be the pride of the Chaldean people. It's going to be the pride of all the Middle Eastern folk in that area. They're going to be so proud of their wonderful city. Except that between when Isaiah is talking and writing and when they become that magnificent city, they're also going to be crushed by the Assyrians. And then they're going to rise back up. They're going to gain their strength. And they're going to crush the Assyrians. And then they are going to move into that vacuum and become the chief store of power right there in the Middle East. And then they're finally going to conquer Jerusalem, which even the Assyrians hadn't been able to do because God would not let the Assyrians do that. They got as far as Nob. They got two miles away from Jerusalem. God sends an angel, kills 185,000 in a night, and turns the king of Assyria back to Nineveh where he came from. So then how is it that the Babylonians managed to conquer well, it's because that was God's plan. He wasn't going to let the Assyrians do it, but he always intended that the Babylonians would do it. But not only did he prophesy, and we're going to look at it in a minute, that through Jeremiah he prophesies that they are going to conquer Jerusalem and take them captive. But in the midst of prophesying that, he too says, it's the Medo-Persians who are then going to come in and conquer you. And then Isaiah is going to pick it up many chapters from now, and name Cyrus by name at least 150 years in advance and say that Cyrus is the king who's going to grow up and let the Jews go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple and rebuild their wall. That's all prophetic. And yet, we can go back and look at human history. And it happened. There's no question that Babylon became great and mighty Babylon. We all know that because as recently as uh, Saddam Hussein, he struck coins that had on one side the picture of Nebuchadnezzar and his face superimposed over each other and on the back pictures of Babylon and the hanging gardens and stuff because he wanted to rebuild Babylon to its former glory. He never did it. Why? Because the Bible says it's never going to be rebuilt that way again. But even when people on the planet to this very day attempted to do it, God still faithfully wouldn't allow it to be done. So the prophecies that we're reading here in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, the stuff we're going to look at tonight is still current today. People are still fighting over there in the Middle East 
and part of the central idea of it is Babylon, rebuilding Babylon and the power structure of Babylon, because once upon a time, it had influence over the whole rest of the known world, which is why John in the book of Revelation would pick up the image of Babylon and say that Babylon has influenced all the kings of the planet. That's 92, 96 AD. And that casts it out in the future for us. So this whole Babylon thing is very central to our biblical understanding, especially because it proves the prophetic nature of the Bible, that unique prophetic nature of the Bible that just nobody else could do. Have I hammered away at the details enough? I just want you to understand that when Isaiah is writing this, None of it has happened. And he's predicting big stuff. He's predicting that Babylon, which is about to get crushed, is going to become the pride of the Chaldeans. And then it's going to fall. And it's exactly the Medo-Persians that are going to take it down. And that's impregnable, unconquerable Babylon. And they're going to be taken down by the Medes and the Persians. And so Isaiah has said things here that if they don't come true, prove that he's a false prophet and the Bible can't be trusted. But they are also things that you can just go look at Middle Eastern history and you will find that Babylon did in fact become great and powerful Babylon and that it did fall to the Medes and the Persians and you can't get away from that. And the same way that Daniel predicts that the Medes and Persians are going to fall to Alexander the Great, that's what happened. Inexplicably. A word I suddenly couldn't say. <laughs> Inexplicably, that's exactly what happened, which means this is either the word of God or God got really lucky. He just counted on people for hundreds of years to just cooperate. Or he exercised his almighty power to make sure the things that he had already said absolutely came true because after all, he's the almighty and he can do whatever he wants on his planet. Okay, so I've, I've mentioned a couple times here Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah 51, if you would. I am particularly interested in showing you verse 11, but I'm going to start reading from verse 1, just so that you understand that here is Jeremiah predicting the rise and fall of Babylon but he is taking it from a slightly different perspective because he includes in the entirety of his prophecy that Jerusalem is going to fall to Babylon and that they're going to go into captivity for 70 years. Thus says the Lord, behold, I am going to arouse against Babylon and against the inhabitants of Lebkamai, the spirit of the destroyer. So it's kind of a convoluted sentence. So what he's saying is, Behold, I am going to arouse the destroyer against Babylon. And I shall dispatch foreigners to Babylon that they may winnow her, in other words, sift her like wheat. And they may devastate her land, for on every side they will be opposed to her in the days of her calamity. Let not him who bends his bow bend it, nor let him rise up to his scale armor. So do not spare her young men. Devote all her army to destruction. 
and they will fall down slain in the land of the Chaldeans. So once upon a time, Babylon was the pride of the Chaldeans. Now God is saying, in the land of the Chaldeans, I'm going to make sure that young men, old men, even men who would otherwise be able to fight are not able to fight. They're not able to outfit themselves. They're not able to pull their bow. I'm going to slay them utterly in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will pierce them through on their streets. Verse 5, for neither Israel nor Judah has been forsaken. That's the theme. We see it over and over again. All the prophets speak with one voice. Even though God has scattered Israel, the northern tribes, he's going to be faithful to them, and he's going to bring them back, gather them again a second time, just like we saw a couple weeks ago. Isaiah predicts it. The same way that I brought them out of Egypt, I'm going to bring them out of all the lands that I have scattered them to, and I'm going to gather them a second time. So the faithfulness of God to his people is thematic here, And he doesn't just say that Judah, who is in Babylon, is going to be brought back. Instead, he says, for neither Israel nor Judah has been forsaken. Yeah, they've been scattered, but God hasn't given up on them because he chose them. Because he said from the beginning, you're my people, I'm going to be your God. By his God, by Israel's God, the Lord of hosts, although their land is full of guilt before the Holy One of Israel... God is not going to forsake them. Flee from the midst of Babylon, and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment, for this is the Lord's time of vengeance. So here is God saying he's going to take vengeance against Babylon for taking Judah into captivity. And yet that's the very thing that God used Babylon to do. He used Babylon to correct Jerusalem. And then after 70 years, he's going to let his people come back to Jerusalem and punish Babylon for the fact that they took his people captive. That should sound familiar, because the same thing he did to the Assyrians, because that's the way God works. Flee from the midst of Babylon, and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment, for this is the Lord's time of vengeance And he is going to render recompense to her. Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine, and therefore the nations are going insane. So the more the nations of the earth embrace the philosophy, the theology, the governmental system of Babylon that permeates the planet to this very day, the more they drink of it, the more insane they become. Now, I won't get political on you, but I think we're living in a particularly wild time right now. And yet, God would explain that as, well, yes, that's because the world has abandoned me and is drinking from the cup of Babylon. That imagery carries over to the book of Revelation. Keep your finger there in Jeremiah. Keep your other finger in Isaiah 13. And now go to the book of Revelation. Let's all go to Revelation 18.3. But if you would, Steve, go to Revelation 14.8. And the rest of us will go to Revelation 18.3. Revelation 18.3. For everybody but Steve. 
In fact, why don't you read that for us, Steve, because it's going to describe the same imagery we just heard from Jeremiah. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. She made all nations drink of her sexual immorality. Jeremiah said, Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine, and therefore the nations are going mad, are going insane. So this cup that is mixed with the blood of the saints is the blood that the nations have drunk into, demonstrating their sexual immorality, which is a whole lot more in the Bible than just the act of sexuality. Usually it means types of whoredoms that are idolatry, that are separate from God, that are chasing after other gods. Revelation 18.3. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Okay, so how long ago did Babylon fall? It already fell to the Medo-Persians. But the iniquity of Babylon, the philosophy, the theology of Babylon continues to permeate the earth. And the kings of the earth and the peoples of the earth continue to indulge in her wine and her sinfulness and her fornications against God. And that means that the nations are insane. And so there's going to be an ultimate destruction of that entire system. And John says that the angel cries, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of her passion, of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. It's exactly what Isaiah said. Come out of her. She's going to be destroyed. Get out from under that destruction. Come out from her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins and that you may not receive of her plagues, for her sins have piled up as high as the heavens, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and I will not see sadness or mourning. For this reason, 
In one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing in the distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe to the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her, because no one buys her cargoes anymore, cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones, and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet, and every kind of citron wood, and every article of ivory, and every article made from very costly wood, and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense, and wine and olive oil and fine oils, and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses, and chariots and slaves and human lives and the fruit you long for has gone from you and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them the merchants of those things who became rich by her by Babylon will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment weeping and mourning and saying, Woe, woe, the great city! She who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and every sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance, and they were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city? is like this great city. They threw dust on their heads and they were crying, weeping and mourning, woe, woe, woe to the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth for in one hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven. The kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth are wailing, tormented at the destruction of all the riches, the power, the might that was accumulated through Babylon, that great city, and the system that arose from it. And when the economy of the earth is utterly destroyed, human beings are going to cry out woefully at the destruction of all their luxury and all their wealth. But verse 20 gives you the opposite reaction from heaven. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. So whatever Babylon is, the city itself the culture that grew out of the city, the many gods that came out of that city that are still recognized and celebrated on planet Earth today just under different names, but that same Babylonian mystery religion still exists on the planet. We're about to celebrate some of those holidays. And as that is continuing on the planet, people think that they're fine. People think we're wealthy. People think we've made a lot of money, we've made great commerce, we're comfortable, we've got luxury now. God is going to crush that system. And when he destroys that system and destroys Babylon, all the saints, all the apostles, all the prophets are going to be rejoicing because God has finally pronounced judgment against her on behalf of the saints 
Why? Because we're in the world and not of it. We're not part of that system. We're supposed to be separate from that system, and that is the very system that is trying to suppress us in unrighteousness. When God ultimately destroys it on behalf of his people, we're going to be in heaven celebrating. Okay, that was an addendum to Jeremiah. Go back to Jeremiah. Starting at verse 6 again. Flee from the midst of Babylon, and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment, for this is the Lord's time of vengeance, and he is going to render recompense to her. Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating the earth. I wanted to get back to that phrase because you'll notice that God takes credit for the cup that ultimately causes the indignation against the Babylonian world, the world that has rejected God in favor of luxury and in favor of riches, in favor of wealth. And yet it is God himself who has used Babylon as a golden cup in his own hand. So he is so sovereign that he's even responsible for judging the system that he allowed to exist. That cup in the hand of the Lord is intoxicating all the earth, as Steve read and as we read from Revelation. Intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk her wine. Therefore, the nations are going insane. Suddenly, Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail over her. Bring balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We applied healing to Babylon, but she was not healed. No, of course not. You can't heal what God has made sick, what God has broken. So God here is mocking the kings of the earth and the mighty people of the earth and saying, oh, sure, go try to heal that. Go try to fix it. The most recent attempt at that was the attempt to rebuild Babylon and rebuild the hanging gardens. And none of that could happen because God himself said, you could try it, but she can't be healed. We applied healing to Babylon, but she has not been healed. Forsake her and let us each go to his own country. For her judgment has been reaching to heaven, and it towers up to the very skies. The Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us recount or review it. Let us think about it and talk about it in Zion. Let us go home, and then we'll talk about the work that the Lord our God has done. Okay, so what I wanted you to see in reading that part of Jeremiah is that he seemed to be talking forward all the way to the ultimate destruction of Babylon. He uses the exact same language that John picks up in Revelation and casts out into the future about the ultimate destruction of Babylon, and yet he's also talking about the immediate destruction of Babylon because in verse 11 it says, sharpen the arrows, fill the quivers. The Lord has aroused the spirit of the kings of the Medes. So he's talking about the destruction of Babylon through the Medo-Persians, and as he's describing it, he leapt forward to that cup that the Lord has in the hand of Babylon, with which all the kings of the earth have been drunk, and the whole world has gone insane and mad over it. John talks about it. He wasn't just reciting it or making commentary on it. He recites it the same way Jeremiah recited it because this is still the system that exists on the planet which God is ultimately going to destroy. So I just want you to see again the way the prophets work. 
as they're talking about something in their immediate future, in the next couple of hundred years, they also leap forward to the ultimate end of everything. You got all that? I know I just crammed a whole lot of stuff in there. Did I lose anybody? I will take that as a no. Sharpen the arrows, fill the quivers. The Lord has aroused the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his purpose is to destroy Babylon. His purpose is against Babylon to destroy it. So it is God whose purpose is against Babylon to destroy Babylon. So for that reason, God aroused the spirit of the kings of the Medes so that they would go attack Babylon because this is God's vengeance against Babylon for it is the vengeance of the Lord and the vengeance for his temple. Because when Babylon did conquer Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple. And that was God's temple. So now God is meeting out his own vengeance on Babylon for the destruction of his temple, and he's going to do it by stirring up the Medes so that they'll go attack Babylon. That's a really sovereign God. That's all I'm saying. That's a God who's in charge of stuff. A God who is in charge of that can take care of your problems. He can protect you against your next electric bill. He can protect you when the doctor gives you bad news. He can take care of you when you encounter the worries of this world. He has this long, rich history of moving kings and nations according to his protection of his own people and his judgments against the people who run counter to him. That's who he is, and that's what he's like, and that's what he promises to do for you. Because his purpose is against Babylon to destroy it, for it is the vengeance of the Lord and vengeance for his temple. So then, lift up a signal. That's what we just read in Isaiah. On an empty hill, lift up a banner, because God is going to assemble an army. Lift up the signal against the walls of Babylon. Post a strong guard. Station sentries. Place men in ambush. For the Lord has both purposed it and performed it. Past tense. It hasn't happened yet. But with God, once he says he's doing it, that's done. That's a done deal. He's going to accomplish it. He has performed it. What he has spoken concerning the inhabitants of Babylon is what he has both purposed and will perform. Okay. So now knowing all that, go to the book of Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 5. After Jeremiah, you'll go through Ezekiel, and that'll get you to Daniel. So in terms of sequence, Isaiah predicts the fall of Babylon before Babylon has even become a powerhouse in the Middle East. Isaiah says that it's going to be the beauty, the wonder, the splendor of the Chaldeans. They're going to be so proud of it. But then he says that it's going to fall to the Medes. He says that a couple hundred years in advance. Jeremiah comes around and predicts that Babylon, which is a mighty nation at that point, is going to conquer Jerusalem, and that Jerusalem is going to go into Babylon for 70 years. Daniel is actually in Babylon. He went with the first wave of deported people into Babylon. 
when they came first and took all the educated people, the mighty people, the princes. They were all moved into Babylon. He ends up serving for King Nebuchadnezzar there. We don't have time to go back and recount all that story. I hope you know a lot of it. He's interpreting dreams for King Nebuchadnezzar. He becomes very well respected and loved there in Babylon. But then Nebuchadnezzar dies. His son takes over and his grandson ends up ruling Babylon while Nebuchadnezzar's son is actually out of Babylon. So Belshazzar is the name of that grandson. He decides to throw himself a great big feast to show off to everybody and show how really great he is. And in the midst of throwing his feast, he also wants to kind of taunt the Jews in his service there. And so he commands that the golden cup, the golden drinking implements that were in the temple of God be brought to him as he is celebrating his foreign gods and he's going to drink out of them demonstrating that he is more powerful and he is more mighty than the God of the Jews because look, not only did I destroy that temple but now I've taken the gold out of the temple and I'm using it to celebrate my gods. Okay, well, God doesn't sit for this. Here's the story. Chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. And Belshazzar tasted the wine, and he gave orders to bring the gold and the silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem in order that the kings and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might all drink from them. And then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, out of the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the kings and the nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, of iron, of wood, of stone. And suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand as it did the writing. And the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, I'm guessing, yeah. And his knees began knocking together, and the king called aloud to bring in the conjurers and the Chaldeans and the diviners. And the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, anyone who can read this inscription and explain the interpretation to me will be clothed in purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have the authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read or make the interpretation known or what the interpretation was for the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed and the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and the nobles and the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale for there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, appointed him 
chief of the magicians and the conjurers and the Chaldeans and the diviners. And this was because of the extraordinary spirit, knowledge, insight, interpretation of dreams, explanations of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems that Daniel did, whom the king had named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought to Judah? Now I have heard about you, that you have the spirit of the gods in you, and that illumination, insult, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me so that they might read this inscription and make the interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said to the king, Keep your gifts for yourself, or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king, and I will make the interpretation known. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. And because of the grandeur which he, is, which he bestowed on him, all peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was disposed of his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. And he was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of a beast and his dwelling place was with wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whoever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought you the vessels of his house before you. And you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines and you began drinking wine out of them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see, they do not hear, they do not understand. But the God in whose hands are your life, breath, and your ways, him you have not glorified. Then this hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Eupharsin. And this is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom, and he has put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and have been found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. That's why we read that whole story. Here Daniel says, it's the Medes and the Persians. By the way, 
Belshazzar then gave orders. They clothed Daniel with purple. They put a necklace of gold around his neck. They issued a proclamation concerning that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. That very night, while the hand was writing, while Belshazzar and his feast were drinking out of the golden cups that belonged to God, that had been consecrated to God, that were set aside as holy to God, as they were drinking to their gods out of those cups, the Medo-Persians were outside the walls, unbeknownst to them, blocking up the branch of the river Euphrates that went under the wall to bring water into all of Babylon so that they could seal up their whole city and still have an ample water supply. The army dammed it up so that they could create a space between the water and the bottom of the Babylonian wall so that they could go under the wall and they arose within the city walls Man by man, the army built itself up inside the city walls and went on a rampage, attacked them in the night while the kings and the nobles and all the rest of them who should have been leading them were busy getting drunk in a feast. And God was writing, you're going to fall to the Medes and the Persians. Meanwhile, he had raised up the heart of the Medes and the Persians against the Babylonians. And as they were doing it that night, Daniel was saying, you know, you can pretty much not make me the third king because you're not going to be here in the morning. So you can keep your gifts. I don't need those. You won't be here to see them come to any kind of fruition. And so what's the point tonight? Why did I go through all, all of that? Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, even reaching out into Revelation, all talk about the fall of Babylon. When Isaiah talked about it, he talked about it before Babylon was even the greatest kingdom in the Middle East. The Assyrians were still in charge. By the time Jeremiah said it, then the Babylonians had risen up in power. They had, were taking Judah captive. God was using Babylon in order to punish Judah. But then Jeremiah predicts it's only going to be 70 years. Then you read in the book of Daniel that Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah. And then he saw that it was only going to be 70 years. And that's when he prays to the angel and says, just do what you said you were going to do. Just, just make it 70 years. And the angel shows up and says, now I'm going to tell you 70 times 7. God is going to keep the 70 years. At the end of 70 years, you're going home. But now I'm going to tell you about the next 77s. All of that is wrapped up in these prophecies that happened way ahead of time. And yet they all turned out exactly like predicted even to the degree that as you go on through the book of Daniel, you see that Daniel predicts the next coming kings. After Medo-Persia, then there's going to be Greece, Alexander the Great. Then there's going to be the Roman kingdom. Then there's going to be this ten-toed, loose confederacy, part iron, part clay. There's going to be this loose confederacy of nations that are going to be gathered that hasn't happened yet in the Middle East. And yet we read about that in the book of Revelation. That's something that's still coming. Okay, so all the previous kingdoms actually rose and fell exactly like the Bible said they were going to. So we should have every confidence that that one's coming too. And it's going to rise and it's going to fall exactly like God said. The reason we know it hasn't been here yet is when that amalgam of kingdoms are ruling in the Middle East, it says that's when Jesus comes back. 
That's when he comes back to establish his kingdom that will never be defeated. That's that stone cut out without hands that comes down out of heaven and crushes every successive kingdom of the earth. That is the final fall of Babylon. It's the final fall of all the kings of the earth who have gone insane because they have drunk that cup of Babylon, that cup of luxury and wealth and man-made authority and self-governance, that idea of foreign gods that you make with your own hands and then bow down and worship them, which is just another form of worshiping yourself because you made the God, you're in control of the God, then you worship that God, you're worshiping you. That whole system is coming down. And whether you see it in Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel, and by the way, there are other places we could have gone. Those were just the three big three I wanted to hit, and that took us off into Revelation, and that only got us one more verse in Isaiah. But, but do you see how it all fits together? I'm just showing you the magnificent fabric of the Word of God as God speaks through successive prophets, predicting more and more detail about how he is controlling the world for the ultimate benefit of his people. He's a really, really faithful God. That's what he keeps saying, that he's not going to abandon his people. He's not going to abandon Israel. He's not going to abandon Judah. In the book of Jeremiah, as we're reading about God's faithfulness, even though he's taking them into Babylon, you get to Jeremiah 31, you read about the new covenant, and at the end of that chapter, God says, as long as there are stars in the heavens, as long as there are waves on the sea, as long as there's still sun, moon, and stars, and day becomes night, and night becomes day, that's how long Israel is still going to be a nation before me. Because he's just saying it over and over again. I'm going to punish you, I'm going to correct you, I'm not going to abandon you. How does that apply to you? Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he's going to correct you. He's going to chasten you. He's going to instruct you. And sometimes that can feel like, where is God in the midst of this? What you need to know is that that God never abandons you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And yet he will correct you over the course of this lifetime because the same God who is in utter control of all human history and will bring it to the very culmination that he has described is the same God who is making sure that you don't get lost between here and your home as you're headed toward it. You got it? Got it. I just want you to get that big picture tonight of how sovereign we say God is, how sovereign the Bible says God is. And if he's in that kind of control and he says, I got you, He's got you. All right? Amen. All right. Hope I didn't lose anybody in the midst of all those details. See these notes right here? Didn't even get to them. Got a long way to go still. Didn't get to them. We didn't even make it to chapter 14. I thought we'd get midway through chapter 14. I was hopeful. <laughs> all right. Any questions about all that? Yeah. That's all teaching, the Bible has a lot to say about Babylon, the city, and it, it's fascinating to me, just the, just the sheer content, and then, you know, mainly the uh, content about it in the book of Revelation. So we looked at some of that tonight, I guess my question is, looking forward, going back to Genesis, uh, Genesis looking 11. forward, going back to Genesis, <laughs> looking to the start, can you get your directions right? <laughs> I cannot. Okay. But anyway, you know, <laughs> 
Um, back in Genesis at uh, Genesis 11, where it talks about the Tower of Babel. Yeah, um, that's the beginning of Babel. It's to be understood from that story that sheds some light on this whole picture. Absolutely. As to help us better understand it. Yeah. Uh, because it seems there's some similarities in what happened there versus... Yeah. Uh, and actually, it's thematic, right? Like you're saying, from Genesis to Revelation, mm -hmm. that whole picture of human beings wanting self-governance, wanting to throw off God, we're going to build a tower to the heavens, we're going to show ourselves that we are God, all of that is what God broke up at the Tower of Babel. Mm -hmm. And that area became Babylon. Right. And that is ultimately the, the system that's going to be ultimately destroyed. Because ever since men fell into sin, they have always wanted to overthrow God, become their own gods, make their own gods, build their own tower to the heavens. If we can't get there any other way, we'll do it by our work. We'll get together and build up to it. And that's why God said, now I'm going to scatter your, your languages so you can no longer communicate with one another so that you'll break off into branches and groups of people and that I will use you against each other to keep you all in line. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we really understand how rebellious human beings are. Just the natural rebellion of human beings from the time they're children. And God has to look at us all as rebellious children. And he disciplines us by using us against each other in his sovereign plan. It's, it's remarkable. Did I answer your question? I may have just talked all over you. No, you, yeah, you did. My main question was, is it relevant, I guess, in which way? And, and yes, it does. Yeah. I mean, like you stated, it, it does seem to be relevant. I mean, there's that same story in Genesis that, that's in Revelation. The collective humanity gathered together to... Overthrow God. by themselves, really, yeah. is what it is, rather than God. And yeah. God would have it back then. And that's when he scattered them, says across the globe then, and right. gave them different languages to confuse them. It is like bookends of the human story. Right. It starts with Babel. It ends up at God destroying Babylon. Yeah. And so it, even though there is the place of Babel and there is the city of Babylon, Babylon has been uninhabited. Uh, ever since God said, that's it, nobody gets to inhabit you anymore. And yet you get to the book of Revelation, you see that that spirit of Babylon, the gods of Babylon, the, the mystery worship that came out of Babylon. The, it's referred to as city there, the great city there multiple times. Yeah, that they're going to cry over the great city. And, and I'm willing to say, if you're, you know, if we find out that ultimately God says, okay, start rebuilding the city, and then I'm going to wreck it again, I'm okay with that. Yeah. But you just don't find anywhere in the biblical timeline where it says, now Babylon gets rebuilt. Yeah. Instead, what you see is God keeping it from being rebuilt, but then you see its ultimate destruction. So I think that ultimate destruction is more than just brick and mortar. It is the destruction of the entire system that has existed ever since the Tower of Babel. It's big stuff, isn't it? Yeah. It's fun to read the Bible. Any other questions? I gotta let you go, it's gotten late. All right, say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank 
you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.